Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16, uh, uh, page 11 of the Black Pew Bible. As tonight we continue our study in the pilgrimage of Abraham, our study of Abraham, our forefather in the faith, the forefather of believers, of Christians. Abraham was a believer who trusted God, and yet he had his ups and downs. He would take a step forward in walking with God, trusting in God, and then he would take a step backward in distrust. The last two weeks, in chapter 15, we saw God twice reassure him in the face of questions Abraham had about God's plan. God reassured him that God would do what he said he would do. He promised him an offspring through which the whole world would be blessed. God was going to bring that about, even though Abraham and Sarai didn't have children yet. And God promised him a land. And his offspring would inherit that land. And God assured him of that. Tonight, we see in chapter 16, that he and his wife Sarai take a very large step backwards by not trusting God, but by trusting themselves. And that is a failure common to us all. A regular failure of Christians who believe. And so we want to ponder these things as we see them in the life of Abram and Sarai and in our own hearts. And how does the Lord deal with us? So let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 16 and hear now the word of God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, And gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. 
angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadish and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father, we pray that you would richly bless us with understanding of your word, that you would show us the truth of this word, the truth of our own hearts, and the truth of your glory and greatness and kindness in Christ Jesus. So be exalted. Be our teacher. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a kind of soap opera story, isn't it? And it's fascinating that the Bible includes this story for us. You might just as easily, were we writing the story, have gone from Abram's triumph over the kings in chapter 14 to his believing the Lord in chapter 15 to the birth of his promised son in chapter 17. But God saw fit to tell us the sordid story of their failed attempts to further his purposes after their own wisdom and by their own efforts. So we want to ponder this and how God deals with them, and I want to do it in three parts. First, we want to look at verses 1 to 3, the terrible plans Sarai has. And there we learn the mess God's people make in God's kingdom. There we see it. And then in verses 4 to 6, we see the sad consequences of her plan, and we see the meanness God's people find in their hearts. And then in verses 7 to 16, God's intervention as he hunts down Hagar and deals with the situation, and we see how marvelous our covenant God is. The mess God's people make in his kingdom, the meanness we find even in our own hearts, and yet the marvelous God that the covenant God is. So let me invite you to consider the story back at verses 1 to 3, the mess. There's a problem, at least it's a problem uh, as far as Abram and Sarai think. It's not a problem for God, but Abram has been in the land 10 years, it says, verse 3, and Sarai has still not given him a child, verse 1. She's still barren. So Abram has gone from the age of 75 to 85 with this promise that he's going to have children of his own loins. And through those children, there's going to be one who comes who blesses the whole world. 
through Abraham and his offspring. And yet there's no children. So Sarai says to him, verse 2, the Lord has prevented me from having or bearing children. Now we should pause there and reflect that what she says is absolutely true. That the Lord had indeed kept her from having children. Moses here, the narrator, doesn't interject and say, well, no, she wasn't right about that. He doesn't put a parenthesis around it and say, no, no, it wasn't the Lord who prevented her. No, it just assumes that she's correct about this. That in fact, God does, as the Bible say, he opens and he closes the womb that children are a gift from the Lord. And uh, as far as she knew, the Lord had not yet given her children. And she knew that God would have to give her children if she was going to have children. And she had begun to despair that it was ever going to happen in the way that God had seemed to promise. And so she came up with an alternate plan. Now we just want to say, if we have children, they are God's gift to us. And it may be that we have medical conditions that keep us from having children, but even that is still part of God's sovereign plan for us. In her case, we only know that it had been a long time that she was barren, and yet God was sovereign over that barrenness. So she devises a plan, it says, to which Abram agrees. Perhaps they reasoned, you know, if God is at work, he's awfully slow about it. Maybe we should help him along. Maybe he... I don't know, did they think he didn't know what he was doing? God had promised offspring, but there are no offspring. Let's fix the problem ourselves, so to speak. And as we see, they actually mess things up badly. Here's what we'll do, says Sarai. Since the Lord has prevented me from giving birth, take my servant girl. Perhaps I can be built up from her. Now, Maybe Sarai is acting in good faith, we might say, so to speak. Maybe she believes here the people promise of offspring. And it's not that she's just interested in having kids to call her own. And perhaps she thought indeed that Abram would be the one who would have a son, but that it didn't matter whether that son was hers or some other woman's. Maybe that's the case. We do find in this passage that unlike in chapter 15 where Abram was wondering about the offspring promise he asked the Lord how do how am I going to know and the Lord reiterated his promise and gave him a visible sign said look at the stars you'll have a multitude like that he reassured him but here she doesn't ask of the Lord she doesn't evidently inquire of the Lord she takes matters into her own hands And what she does is she availed herself of the custom of the day. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was considered perfectly acceptable by the laws of the nations all around them. Uh, from, From Ur in Mesopotamia, Iraq and Iran to Cappadocia in Turkey, people did this if they couldn't have children. The Assyrians, for instance, had a law. That said, if a wife did not produce children for her husband within two years, she herself could buy a slave woman. And if a child is born, the husband could then sell off the slave woman. But the child would be theirs, would be hers. Something similar to that is going on here. That's the logic of what she's doing here. And we ought to pause there and reflect that that doesn't make it right. (laughs) 
Just because something is legal in society around you doesn't mean it's moral or right in the eyes of God. Just because our non-Christian neighbors are doing something and approve of something doesn't mean that Christians should do or approve of something. It may be acceptable in our culture, but that doesn't make it faithful in the purposes of God. This passage demonstrates how unwise surrogate motherhood can be. They make a very complicated mess of the entangled relationships. The narrator here seems to be emphasizing just how sad this whole situation is. I mean, he reminds you twice in verse 3 that Sarai is Abram's wife. In case you had forgotten it over the course of the last few chapters, not once but twice, Sarai's the wife. And also, he tells you, Abraham is her husband. The reiteration is a kind of emphasis. They were to be as God planned only for each other because that's what marriage is. And yet, here she is giving Hagar to him as a second wife. You sense the sadness of it all and how messy it's going to get. And what we see here is how self-reliant they are. How impatient with God in his purposes. How untrusting of his good purposes for them as he had planned. How distrustful of the long delay and how they determined to fix things for themselves. Having begun... By faith, they tried to complete the promises of God by works of their own or by sight. They started out, you remember chapter 12, they started out depending upon God, but they slipped in here to depending upon themselves. They began trusting God and his promises and then they tried to take over the fulfillment of them. And this is one of the errors that the New Testament points out for us in Galatians that Christians can slip into, and it is a dangerous error. And he even uses, Paul does in Galatians, the, the story of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai to illustrate his point. So if you were to turn over to Galatians chapter 4 and then chapter 3, let me just point out to you in Galatians chapter 4 that uh, in verse 21 and following, The Apostle Paul says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now he's going to go on and talk about this story through the end of the chapter, and we're not expositing Galatians this evening, but recognize what he's saying is the child obtained through Hagar was the product of the flesh, of human ingenuity and desire. And uh, it was the product, he was the product of doubting God and engaging in an act of self-effort and self-reliance, whereas he'll contrast uh, Abraham's child Isaac is obtained through Sarai as the child of promise in accordance with God's promise and God's working and the contrast Paul is making is this those who truly belong to Christ are like the child of Sarai a product of God's own gracious working 
and not like the child of Hagar, a product of their own efforts and self-salvation. And that sort of symbolic significance was important for Paul as he found himself in Galatia speaking to a church that, that was in danger of losing the gospel. That was in danger of walking away from Christ crucified on their behalf and all the promises of God, yes and amen, and his completed work on our behalf. And people who had begun to turn to self-reliance and works of the flesh, works of the law, works of personal obedience to finish the work of God, the promise of God. So if you were to look at Galatians 3, 1 to 3 just momentarily or listen to it, he uses very strong language. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Abraham here might have said, well, Sarai did. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now Paul's answer is, he expects them to give. You know, we received the Spirit of God by hearing with faith. In other words, we heard the gospel of Jesus crucified and the offer of pardon and everlasting life in Jesus. And that word of truth came home to our heart by the Spirit and we believed. And we received as a gift these good things. We didn't get the Spirit because we did works of the law or by our efforts in obedience. But it was promised and received as a gift. So he goes on, verse 3, Galatians 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That was Abram and Sarai's strategy. They've begun with the promises of God, and now they're going to work it all out, all in dependence upon themselves. And so for us, the Apostle Paul's point is, for us who have believed in Jesus crucified for our salvation, you who have begun believing through the Spirit of God at work in you, are you now trying to continue the Christian life and attain maturity and attain perfection, not by the Spirit of God, but by the flesh, not by God, but by your self-effort? You and I are supposed to continue the Christian life as we began it. As you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Keep trusting Him. Keep looking to Him. Keep depending on Him. Keep relying on Him. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's how Abraham was supposed to, Abraham and Sarai were supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to live. But how ready we are to take on the work of God into our own hands instead of trusting it in God's hands. Let me just uh, apply that in a variety of ways. This is a constant and regular temptation and stumbling place for me as a minister and many ministers I know. For instance, there's one guy I know really intimately well who likes to spend almost all his sermon preparation time preparing the words of the sermon, but very little of that time appealing to God to bear fruit in his people's lives by the work of the Spirit bearing fruit through that word that's preached. Oh no! Oh no! It's all up to me to get the next sentence grammatically correct and rhetorically profound. Or churches do this. 
churches who put their hopes in building the church on business principles. Glossy brochures. And I'm terrible at brochures, and we could use a good, beautiful, glossy brochure. Don't get me wrong. But our hopes of building the church isn't on a brochure. But churches that do put their hope in that are Starbucks coffee bars, or worse, and I love Starbucks, high-pressure sales tactics and guilt manipulation and innovations in worship that are not prescribed by God but are in accordance with human ingenuity. What will gather a crowd? Should we swallow fish for each person who comes? You know, It's an old youth ministry trick. Instead of hoping in God, trusting in God to build His church His way through what? The Apostle Paul says through the foolishness of preaching the gospel through the ministry of word and sacrament, through relying upon him in prayer, in dependence upon him to do what only he can do. In other words, do we live by sight or do we live by faith? Do we live trusting God to complete that which he has begun? Or are we going to fix the problem, whatever that problem is as we see it? So too do Christian parents do this. Christian parents who aren't looking to God to bring home his promises to the hearts of their children, the grace of the gospel to the heart of their child, but they carry the weight of that uh, and the weight of their kids' own salvation and their perfection and their sanctification and their completion in Christ uh, after their own human wisdom strategy and tactics instead of appeals to the Father. To send forth his spirit into the hearts of my children and bring the word of Christ by the spirit of Christ and bear fruit. It's an issue of hope is what I'm saying. Where do we put our hopes? All of us are tempted to take the progress of God's kingdom, the progress of our own Christian life into our own hands to trust our own ingenuity. And this passage reminds us not to do that. Don't scheme and plan and rely on your own innovation and invention because what you'll do is you'll just make a mess of things like Abram and Sarai did. And the nice thing here at least is this, the Bible is sympathetic to that temptation. One of the reasons you have a story like this is to remind you that you are not the first person to go that route. You are not the only person to go that route. Our forefather in the faith went that route. And God cleans up the messes we make in his kingdom because he sustains his purposes. So that's that's the first thing here, the mess we make. The second thing is you see in verses 4 to 6, really the, the, the meanness. It's for alliterative purposes, but there's a lot of meanness here that comes out as they both try to fix the problem and then the aftermath of the mess they make. Uh, and what you have here in verses 4 to 6 is, is a picture of what happens when people deviate God's plan for marriage as given in, in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. You have the kind of mess that can happen when, when we deny the principle of one man, one woman bound together in monogamy. And uh, there's a real mess here. It looks like it looks like at the beginning the, the Hagar plan has succeeded. Verse 4, Abram goes into Hagar. Hagar conceives. 
and is with child. She's fertile and she's proud. She's maybe strutting about the house a little bit because she's pregnant and Sarai is barren and she is beginning to look at Sarai down her nose and with contempt. And Sarai is understandably hurt and angry. In verse 5 she says to Abram, It's your fault! (laughs) May the wrong done to me be upon you. Right? I don't deserve this. You deserve this. But wait, of course, wasn't this her idea? I mean, you can can imagine Abram saying that to himself, if not out loud. I, I thought you thought of this plan. Abram, of course, should have said no to her. And at verse 5, she says, may the Lord judge between me and you. So Abram simply wilts before her. If you go back to chapter 14, the contrast is striking outside the home. Remember in the daring night raid rescue of Lot, he was bold and daring. And at home here before Sarai, he folds like a wet noodle. In verse 6, he just simply says what? Do with Hagar what you want. Now, Abram, we have every reason to believe, understood that that was wrong. He knew the law of his culture that not only permitted him to take her, but the law of his culture that allowed for that kind of a concubine or wife. Um, The law, though it allowed for her to be returned to the status of a slave and not maintain the status of a concubine, did not allow him to put her out of the household. Because after all, how is a woman in this condition ever going to provide for herself if she's kicked out of the household after this situation? Her odds of being able to do that are about nil. And Abram has a covenantal responsibility to care for her well-being now that he has taken her. But Abram didn't care about that. And he just says to Sarai, you do whatever you want to do. And Sarai's mad. And so uh, Sarai gets her way. And Abram just lets her have it. And what does she do? She is harsh and vindictive to Hagar. Such that Hagar ran away with Abram's son. The laws of Ur-Namu. Ur of the Chaldeans in a place one of these social custom laws, again, specified that an insolent concubine could be dealt with by scouring out their mouths with a quart of salt. Concubine would show contempt for the first wife. It allowed for that kind of harsh. Now, we don't know that she employed the saline solution, but she dealt so harshly with Hagar That Hagar said, I've got to leave. I'm out of here. What a disappointment God's people can be. The meanness. But before we just chalk this up to how dysfunctional families are, or how complicated and messy it can get if we uh, engage in polygamy, or open marriage, or surrogate conception and motherhood, Notice how the writer has told the story here. There's something deeper happening. Verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
The only other place where that phrase occurs is Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, after the fall where Yahweh accuses Adam for having listened to the voice of his wife Eve. Notice also verse 3, the language there, we read that Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram, her husband. She took and she gave. And that is the same language and the verbs used in Genesis 3.16 where Eve took the forbidden fruit and gave to her husband. And he took. In other words, you have here the writer and the way he has has written and shaped the story for us. He is telling you, you've got another kind of fall. The shadow of Genesis 3 has fallen over the family life of Abram and Sarai. Now, it's it's not the same kind of unique fall that our first parents had, but it's of the sort in a more generic way, it's after the same kind of pattern. You, pattern. you even have here the, the passivity of the husband going along to get, it, get along. You uh, have here uh, the similar uh, motivations in the wives. Eve wanted to attain for herself what she wasn't satisfied God had given to her. God had made her in his likeness and the devil said, eat that and you'll, you'll be like God. She wasn't satisfied with the way God would, was fulfilling his promise of what he had given to her. Similarly, Sarai here is motivated. Likewise, you've got blame shifting. Adam blamed, blamed Eve and God for the fall. Eve blamed Satan and God for the fall. And Sarai blames Abram. And God, after all, God kept me from having a baby, and Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you because, well, let the Lord judge between us. I think you're more wrong than I am. The shadow of Genesis three falls upon not just Abram and Sarai; it falls on all of us. What a what a mess of things we make, and how mean we get when it doesn't turn out the way that we wish. Hagar, she gloats. Sarai, she gets angry and harsh. Abram, hey, I'm not responsible around here. I'm not supposed to protect you or speak the truth to you or or stand up to you when you want me to sin. We then don't repent when we do so. We we rather retaliate. It's the, the meanness that infects us still. There's a great prayer in, in the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers that, um, where the, the author prays this way, O Lord, may every sense member faculty affection, my every sense member faculty and affection is a snare to me. I can scarce open my eyes, but I envy those above me or despise those below me. If I behold beauty, is it, it is but a bait for lust. Or see deformity, it stirs up loathing and disdain. Am I comely? What fuel for pride? Am I deformed? What an occasion for repining. Am I gifted? I lust after applause. Am I unlearned? How I despise what I have not. Am I in authority? How prone to abuse my trust and serve my own interests. Am I inferior? How much I grudge others' preeminence. That's actually a good confession to make. And to grieve over 
the blight of Genesis 3 that lives on in and remains in the corruption of our own natures. It's healthy, in fact, not morbid, to acknowledge how sinful we are. Blessed then are the poor in spirit, the kingdom belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, grieve, who grieve evil, grieve sin, grieve their own. They will receive the comforts of the gospel, for Christ died for the ungodly. And so we see not only the mess, but the meanness. And finally, we see how marvelous our God is. For at verse 7, he goes seeking Hagar and to bring restoration. What Abram and Sarai did did was not good. What Hagar did uh, was not good and not good for her. But what God did was good to her. Verse 7, what did he do? He chased her down and found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And four times it says in verses 7 to 11 that the angel of Yahweh did this, the angel of the Lord. This is the first occurrence in the Bible of this being. And an angel means messenger. It doesn't necessarily imply that it's one of the created order of angelic beings. In fact, verse 13 seems to imply that this is Yahweh himself in some kind of visible form. She names Yahweh who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Likely, and I'm with Calvin, and he's with the church fathers on this throughout the long history. Not all would affirm this, but that this is some kind of visible manifestation of the one true God in some human form. Perhaps the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate Christ manifesting himself to her. But in any case, notice how marvelous God is to her. Marvelous in four things. His compassion, his counsel, his comfort, and his condescension. Notice in the first place how marvelous he is in his compassion. He chased her down and found her by a spring of water in the wilderness like God finding Adam and Eve hiding from him in and among the trees like Jesus in John 4 at a well seeking and finding a Samaritan woman who's had five husbands. She's now living with her sixth man and offering her not just springs of water to drink for her thirst, but the springs of living water for life. So here in scandalous kindness, God chases her down where she's hiding in the woods and he engages her in conversation to bless her. Interestingly, Bruce Waltke points out this is the only known example in all ancient Near Eastern literature of any religion in which the deity speaks a woman's name in direct address to her. Where the deity actually speaks to her face a woman's name, Hagar, he says. And she is an Egyptian, and she is a slave girl. And she is a proud woman who has just looked with contempt on Sarai, the mother of the promises. A woman of, shall we say, no great importance in the culture of her day. A a nobody we'd have never heard of but for the part she plays in the scandal. And this is the one God says, I'm going to go meet with her. 
I'm going to go help her. Because this is the compassion of the God we serve. He's more interested in us than we are in Him. When she was not seeking Him, He went seeking her. He's full of compassion. Now the second thing is, He's marvelous in His counsel. Notice at verse 8, what does He say? Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? Well, she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. We, we, uh, we run away from our problems. We run away from hard situations. And God's basically recognizing how difficult is it going to be for her to live in the wilderness, pregnant, without a husband, alone, having run away with Abram's child. And so he gives her counsel, and it is admittedly difficult counsel, counsel which some in our day might not give to a person in this situation. And yet, by contrast, then, how marvelous is his wisdom. He says, verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. For her, the way forward in her life is not to run from, but to the relationship. Not to run from them, but to return to them. Not to escape, but to engage. And where has she had exalted herself over Sarai, now she is to humble herself under Sarai in humility and submit. Coming back, of course, would show grace. It would show trust in the Lord to watch over her, to fulfill the promises making to her son, Ishmael, that he will be a great nation, and he will be. Many will come from him. Now, certainly we can say the Lord knew that her life was not in danger here. We don't know what kind of affliction, how harsh and in what manner Sarai inflicted it. It would have been hard. She fled from it. But he sent her back. Now not every story of domestic affliction should end with one who has left returning to face that kind of affliction. And particularly, and just as a for instance, if somebody's life is in danger, it is better to separate and then seek outside help protection and counsel than to go back into a situation where a life is in danger certainly but here the Lord knows that she needs to go back despite the relational difficulties and sometimes so with us people we live with aren't relationally easily to live with easy to live with and toughing it out is what love calls us to like for instance when a husband and wife have fallen out of feelings for affection for one another and have begun to not be very nice to one another and in fact are dissatisfied with each other and have begun to dislike one another. Yet on account of the promise before God that they would be one for each other, they remain in that marriage even though it's hard and they'd rather be somewhere else. But love calls them to love their spouse even as we love an enemy. If we can't love them like a friend, let alone love them like a spouse. It's that kind of thing, I think, here. It wouldn't be easy, but it is where Hagar belonged. And so God counseled her that way. He's marvelous also in his comfort. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Why should that be? It's going to be a gift. The first, a son, should be named Ishmael because that means God hears because God Yahweh had listened to her affliction and her son should be named in remembrance of his listening to her 
in her affliction and comforting her with his birth. Now, it does say Ishmael will be kind of a wild donkey of a man or a wild colt of a man. He will live outside and untamed and even standing against his brothers as we see later that he does. And yet for her, what a comfort that she will raise this boy in the household of Abraham. And finally, how marvelous in his condescension is our God. Not in the very negative and proudly human way of you know looking down our nose at people that we think are our inferior, but in the very positive and divine sense of the one who is infinitely high in rank and dignity and holy other who stoops down and kneels, as it were, before his people to have a relationship with one who is smaller than himself infinitely so and so at verse 30 13 she calls the name of Yahweh who spoke to her you are a God of seeing for I have seen him who looks after me she names him the God of seeing she's delighting in seeing him and being seen by him in knowing him and being known by him and this has happened because he stooped low to bring it about. And the place is commemorated at verse 14 called Bir Lahai Roy, meaning the well of the living one who sees me. And though she had added her own contribution to the domestic troubles of Abram and Sarai, she was not faultless. God didn't hide himself from her, but he found her in her hiding place. God stoops low. For the lowliest, so low, he got hung on a cross for those he came to save. Because his grace doesn't dry up in the face of our stupidity. That's a great God. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and give you thanks. You are great and marvelous. Help us to know you. And to delight in knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.